All right, welcome to another edition of the Edlow Podcast. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Uh, I say this every time, but this is another exciting one for me because I have what I consider to be the godfather of MMA and a professional wrestler extraordinaire, the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock. Ken, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, appreciate you having me. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to start by saying I, I have a little story for you. So uh, uh, the first UFC I ever saw, a friend of mine rented UFC 5, which was your famous super fight with Hoist Gracie. And uh, that was probably 96 when I saw it. And it just blew me away. The whole thing blew me away. As a, as a lifelong pro wrestling fan, it blew me away. And then probably about six months to a year later, there was a house show in Stockton, California, and uh, for the WWF at the time. And I was there in attendance. There was a huge ruckus in the crowd, and you were in the crowd, and everyone was coming to get to get autographs from Ken Shamrock. And, uh, and the next thing I know, Ken Shamrock has signed the WWF, and, uh, and you're, you know, you're right in there at WrestleMania. And so did, did that – how did that come about? How did you make the shift from MMA to the WWF? Yeah, I, I, you know, and there's a story that goes behind that because my love was actually fighting. I mean, that was just something I went through over in Japan and then transferred into the UFC. And, you know, it was what I was really known for and what I really enjoyed doing. But prior to that, I was also a wrestling guy. I mean, I wrestled mm -hmm. early on in North Atlantic – pro wrestling area under mm -hmm. Vince Torelli. My, my uh, stage name was Vince Torelli. So you know, when I actually joined the WWF, people always kind of figured, wow, how did he go from fighting into pro wrestling and do so well? Well, I had about two years of experience already on the indie circuits before I became a fighter. And then of course, transferred over into the WWF. But the reason why I started going back into pro wrestling was because I, I had built this, Ken Shamrock, world's most dangerous man um, persona. And I always told myself in, in my life that, you know, I'm going to continue to do the things I love to do as long as I'm able to, you know, support my family, do the things that I'm responsible for doing, raising my kids, supporting my wife, making sure I'm there for my family, you know, uh, house bills, school clothes, all these things that I have to be responsible for. And of course, I had group home with kids that I, I reached out and started helping with that. So I had a lot of things that I was responsible for. And it just came a time in, in the UFC at that time where I wasn't able to really go back and get the money I needed because my contract had come up and I was supposed to be guaranteed a certain amount of money to be able to, to keep this, this world that I created um, going. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't able to do that. So I had to make a choice on whether or not I was going to keep doing what I love doing or I was going to go and do the things that I was supporting doing, which was the group home for the kids, six, six kids there. Uh, and then of course the fighter's house when I had uh, seven or eight fighters there. And then I had three gyms that connected to one another. That was a place for them to train at. So these things all cost money that I had to support. And it was either one cut those off and mm -hmm. just focus on Ken Shamrock in my career and cut all those people out. And mm -hmm. I felt really bad about doing that so i chose not to cut those guys' careers off and the boys and send them back to group home i chose to go another route 
and possibly get back to what I love doing and find something else that I can make money at to be able to support this world that I had built and not just throw them to the wolves. And so I did that. And I know a lot of people don't understand that or didn't understand it at that, that, that time because it was nobody else's business of why I chose to do that. But now that I'm, I'm retired and I've done all those things, I'm able to really explain the real the reason why I did that. I know I just covered the surface of saying I couldn't cover and support my family uh, doing that. So I did something else. But it was more than that with what I just explained. It was a whole lot more than that. There was other people that were involved. And I just felt it was unfair for me to, to go and keep doing that. Uh, when I had actually promised to, to support them and train them and do the things I need to do and support the family. So I chose a different direction. Fortunately for me, I chose pro wrestling because I'd done it before a little bit. Didn't think I was going to really enjoy it as much as I did. I just felt like it was a way to go and make money and still be able to do the things that I know how to do in an entertainment value. Mm -hmm. And so when I did it, I, I it was very surprising that uh, I was able to really create this opportunity for everyone else who was involved in fighting to be able to come over and show them that the submissions and all the styles that I was doing in the real world would work also in the entertainment world. And so yeah. there was a lot of things that happened when I made that sacrifice. And to me, I don't feel like it was a sacrifice. I felt like at the time I felt like maybe it was, but once I got into it and I started doing it, I fell in love with it. I mean, I really enjoyed being able to do arm bars and all these new things that nobody had ever seen before. And I became very popular. And I was one of the top wrestling figures in the WWF at the time uh, in a short period of time. So something that I felt was a sacrifice at the time really turned out to be a blessing. Yeah. Well, you know, and it, it's interesting what you say there, because what I find fascinating about that is the level of responsibility you felt for all these people around you. Where do you think that comes from? A lot of guys in your position probably wouldn't do that. What where, what makes you different in that you have felt that responsibility to everybody around you? I, I don't know because I didn't, you know, early on, I was in and out of juvenile hall. I really didn't have anybody that raised us when we were young. We were in bad situations all the time. At 10 years old, I was in juvenile hall. Um, I went into placement um, at 13, and, and I was in placement until I was 18 years old. So, I think probably most of that comes from not wanting to see other people go through what I went through, you know, and, mm -hmm. and the, the bad times. And if I could help change someone's life so that they don't have to experience those things that I experienced, it would be all worth it. So I think a lot of it comes from that, just being able to give people opportunities to be able to change their lives. Because someone gave me that chance, which was Bob Shamrock and Dee Dee Shamrock. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. gave me a, an opportunity to change my life. And I felt like I have that I have that ability and opportunity to do the same thing. And even in that one moment where I could have chose my career over all the other things that were going on. And I felt like I could still have my career. Maybe not now. Maybe I have to sacrifice it now and come back to it later. But I, I felt really, really bad about not holding up to my responsibilities because I started it and I wanted to finish it. Yeah. Where, you know, it, it I find that really interesting. I find it interesting how people's kind of childhood experiences inform what they become in, as an adult. W tell me what it meant to you to have someone like Bob and Dina Shamrock come in at a time when, you know, the system, I, I work with the children's receiving home in Sacramento. And, uh, you know, a lot of those kids, they just, the, the level of stuff that they got to go through, it's really unfair. And there's not a lot of people who are willing. I mean, foster foster homes are so not, I mean, there's not enough of them, right? Yeah. 
And, and a lot of them, they're not. They're just in it for the paycheck. They don't really care. Yeah. So so tell me what it meant to you as someone who went through the system to have someone like Bob and Dina who legitimately cared. Yeah. Um, you know, I went in the system at 10. You know, I was in and out of juvenile hall. I actually got placed at 13. I went through four or five different homes and I ran away from every single one of them and I got kicked out of one of them. Um, and I can tell you now that I'm older, you can look back on it and know that the systems in the home for these kids now are not good. Um, there's probably like myself, there was one out of five that worked for me. And most of the time in those odds, they don't get the fifth one. They don't get the fourth one. They fail two, three. They're going into California Youth Authority. Mm-hmm. So it's really odd for for the way that I, how I went and how many opportunities that I got because I could have easily been stuffed away. But because I was young, there was still a chance for me because I ended up at the Shamrock Boys Home at 13 years old. I was mm-hmm. placed at 10. So imagine the homes that I went through from the time I was 10 till I was 13 and ran away from those homes and then got to Shamrock Boys Home. It was night and day compared mm-hmm. to what the other homes that I went to because Bob and Dee owned their home. It was an mm-hmm. it was an immaculate home. It was um, it was a, a massive home and it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Other places I went to, the beds were torn. There was pee stains all over everything. It was wasn't kept up. There were holes in the wall. And so you would go in there and none of these people that lived there owned the home. They were, they were hired in what they were called hired house parents. They mm. would come in for eight hours. They would go home, another parent. So there was really no one there to really pay attention or really nurture the kids mm. into being able to change some of the bad habits that they've been, that they've had uh, along the mm. way or to try to help them change because it was just basically a holding home. It, was, mm-hmm. it wasn't about to help change them or anything. So being put at the Shamrock Boys Home and to have them really care about who each kid was and they didn't, nobody came in and took over the home for them. It was their home. They were there 24 seven. So you had something to connect to. You had something to rely on and believe in. And, Mm -hmm. um, and that, that they were that. And so when you say, what does it mean to me? It means me that I was able to have another life. I was able to change my life and build another life because of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't think people know the statistics, but the statistics show that over 50% of the kids that end up in the foster care system end up in the prison system as adults. And that means to me, the system's broken, you yep. know? And and it's it's great to see that with the right care, with the right foster care system, we get Ken Shamrock, <laughs> you know? Yep. The world's most dangerous man and and someone who's then also willing to pay it forward. Where does, where does, I know you were, you know, you did high school wrestling, you played football, you obviously were, you know, involved in, in fight sports. Where does that come in, in the, in the chronology where you, that kind of take, you take it uh, like a hold of that? Yeah. You know, um, my Bob Shamrock, when I, when I talked about them being at the home and caring about kids, this is how I was able to really become Ken Shamrock uh, was that, he would look at these kids and he would look at the files and he'd kind of seek some of the things that they had done. And he would literally understand whether they were an introvert or outward with their frustration and anger. Like for instance, somebody that would be introvert with somebody that would cut themselves or burn themselves or mm-hmm. use drugs all the time. And someone that was outward with his people that were violent, that would hit you with bats or punch you or get in fights. They were, you would see it. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have to try to find it because it's there. 
And so there's different ways to deal with those kids. And for me, um, right away, he put me in football. He felt like I needed an outlet to be able to be recognized for my violence in a good way. Um, mm -hmm. so that I could, so he can help me understand that there's a place for it. Mm -hmm. And so when I joined football, that was that's exactly what happened was I was angry and I was hitting people and I got penalties and the coaches had to coach me. I'm like, Hey, you have to do it within the whistle. If it's within the whistle, you hit them as hard as you want, however mm -hmm. you want hit them. Mm -hmm. And so once I started learning that I started getting praised for it and started mm -hmm. being, I started becoming relevant. Like people wanted me to be around them and coach me and get me where I need to be. And if my grades got down, the coaches would come to me and they would put somebody with me to make sure that I got the grades I needed to get on the football field and the wrestling mat. I became relevant because he helped me generate my anger into something now that was considered positive. Mm -hmm. And so um, even with somebody that was introvert, uh, you know, uh, there was one kid there that were, was, was drawing all these heads being cut off and saying, kill them all. And, he got sent home from continuation school because of the pictures he drew. And mm. he, he, of course, he was angry and frustrated and drawing more pictures because they said that he needed to be able to a doctor and put on Ritalin and medication because he's going to end up, you know, acting out these things that he's drawing. And I remember my mom saying, you know, like, because she noticed the artwork that he did. Literally, the, the pictures he drew were just unbelievable. And so mm -hmm. she praised him for it, saying, well, the, and not the drawing itself. She said, oh, that's over. But, man, you could really draw. You've got some talent. He's never heard that before. Like, never, nobody's ever come to him and said, wow, that's a great picture. They're always like, you're sick. Mm -hmm. So she literally challenged him to draw an addition onto the house that we were putting on there, uh, which was more rooms. And he, she challenged him to draw his own design on how he would put that extension out there. And I remember when he drew the, the design, she came to him and said, wow that's really good. And, and it was a, a design where it was like four rooms extended out. The, the walls were all cool. And she says, so how would you build that? And he's like, I don't know. I just drew it. She goes, well, you know, you could literally be doing something in this where you could draw and understand the diagrams. And, and I don't know all this stuff, but the algebra and all the other stuff that comes into it with, you know, what, what, how you have to cut it and the angles and all that. So she put him with the, the guy that was actually building the house to help him understand what his drawings and his talent could turn into. And mm. I remember the kid went on to college and became some sort of architect um, mm. and drawing things all because somebody saw his talent. And I believe that that's with every human being, every little child that is growing up, there's talent in there somewhere. And that the people that are around them, that are raising them, that are trying to help them need to see that talent and nurture that talent so they get praise for something that they're good at. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's, that's really well, you know, well-spoken and, and I agree a hundred percent. I know you've got, uh, you've got four kids of your own and then you have some stepchildren. So how does the way that Bob and Dina treated you inform you as a father? Um, you know, I think it was more about me just paying attention uh, to how they treated everyone. I mean, mm. everyone was family. Um, people that came in, they, they were always polite and offered coffee and, you know, just, just really a, just a different way of life that I was ever accustomed to. Mm -hmm. And so it helped me understand that the, that the life that we live in and the, and the surroundings that we have around us, we're in control of that. We're mm -hmm. in control of on how we want our lives to be. 
and how you treat people, not all the time, but the most of the time on how you treat people is how people are going to treat you. And mm-hmm. so I think that, you know, being able to understand that there are some where you just, they're just angry people, but you don't have to be, you can mm-hmm. always make yourself, uh, put yourself in a position to where you're always being positive, no matter what the situation is. And life becomes much better that way. It's less stressful when you look at everything uh, as a positive. And if there's not a positive, you try to find where you can make a positive. Yeah, I I agree. You know, positive mindset. There's actually, I went through, uh, I got in a car accident and ended up with a concussion that put me out for a little while. I'm an attorney by trade. So I was out by for about six, nine months. And uh, it, was, it was rough. And I remember a speech therapist I was working with saying, to me, studies have shown that those who believe they'll get better do, and those who don't won't. And it complete that alone just changed my whole mindset. And it was like little things like getting up and just, uh, you know, standing up straight, looking people in the eye, smiling, saying hello. It was interesting how, how it completely changed just little things like that changed the way that I, I, I manifested in the world and the way people manifested to me. It was just really interesting. Um, so, so I have to ask, you know, there's two, there's, I think I I consider your career. There's two different things that you were, as far as your MMA career, so, so important to, and that was of course the beginning of the UFC where you, your, your legendary rivalry with Hoist Gracie beating Dan Severn in super fight six, which I was shocked because the dude was so much bigger than everybody. And you, and you took him out, uh, I also think, though, just on a tangent, the UFC was such a big deal in guys like now who are wrestling, like Brian Danielson and, uh, you know, CM Punk and these smaller guys being able to get over in the eyes of Vince and, and the fans. Because seeing guys like Dan Severn get beat by you and Hoist Gracie and different people who are a little bit smaller kind of informed and made it a little more believable for guys like Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart to beat Vader and beat Undertaker, you know, it's more believable. Um, but then there's also the part like, so you're seminal at the beginning of the UFC, but then your rivalry with Tito Ortiz kind of like, I feel like that and the ultimate fighter together kind of made the UFC so much bigger because it was just on live TV. You know, talk to me about what, what you think your legacy to MMA really is i mean you're the, you're the first ufc hall of famer <laughs> you know so what what do you what do you think like what what do you consider your legacy to be yeah i think that you know especially since time keeps going on and skill sets rise to a whole nother level and people look at our fights back now as opposed to what they're doing now and they just can't see it as being anything elite right but what they have to understand is there was no knowledge of anything. There was nowhere to train at as far as the up and down with the grappling and the punching. It was so new that people were learning while they were fighting. And that was me. And mm-hmm. so be able to do what I did with voice Gracie. And this is where I think people have a hard time understanding how incredible the thing that I did with Hoist by being able to beat him. Well, draw, but I pretty much beat him in my opinion, but because of the rule sets, they call it a draw, but to be able to do what I did then with the, with not having the ability to be able to, to be able to go have the, have the, as much knowledge as he had when it came to the ground. Um, it was just unbelievable because I think when you see people now, they go in there and you see a guy as a black belt and 
you go in and you grab him and the other guy is a striker and he has no ability, they just destroy him. Like right. there's no competition. And same mm -hmm. thing with any of the other grapplers, right? That go in there. You got a guy that's been there for, for grappling for 10 years and a guy's been doing it for two years. Guy 10 years just destroys him, right? right. So what 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 I think that the understanding of what when I came in, I had two and a half years of grappling and not just grappling, but submission, what we call a, a, um, a, the, the Japanese style submissions in the, in the papers organization. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, arm bars and leg locks and kicking and striking. So to go in there two years, two and a half years of me being able to have that experience as opposed to 20 years of Hoist mm -hmm. Gracie and his experience with 50 years of his family's experience and them being the ones to set the rules and set the stage for the UFC. And for me to be able to go in there and do what I did was like probably one of the biggest upsets, uh, like Buster Douglas and Mike Tyson, right? I yeah. mean, just something that you just don't see happening or should happen. But because the sport was so young and nobody truly understand understood what the what the disadvantages uh, of, of what I had going in because no one truly understood grappling as opposed to now understanding it. It's, it's just mind boggling that I haven't seen more about that. Right. Because it, yeah. it was a, a huge, huge opportunity for me and a huge mountain to climb considering I did not have the experience or the ability and the submissions to be able to compete with Hoist and still be going there and be able to beat them like I did. So I think my legacy is really the ones where it just gives people hope that anybody at any time can go and do something if they want to put in the work, the hard work, and be dedicated and go in and give it all you got because yeah. anything can happen. Yeah. And, you know, it's just to give a lay of the land to somebody who might be a little bit younger, who's a big UFC fan, what, what they don't understand in the 90s, there were no jujitsu gyms, there were no MMA gyms, it was all Taekwondo. And it was like kids and forms, you know, I did, I did Taekwondo just like every kid I knew did. But as far, I mean, I remember actually the guy, Wade Vieira was the guy I trained under here in Sacramento and he brought a guy to the UFC and the guy got torched in like 15 right. seconds. You know what I mean? Those guys, you know, just didn't handle it. And so, so, I mean, it wasn't until that really that time frame with that fight and then, you know, UFC six and the invention of Tank Abbott and a couple other guys, you started seeing all these MMA gyms and UFC gyms and, and, and jiu-jitsu gyms pop up. And you created the Lion's Den. And I know some guys who kind of ran through there. And I got to say, your, 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 gym, your cardio uh, routine is legendarily horrific. <laughs> like, yeah. talk, talk to me about your philosophy when training guys at the Lion's Den. Yeah, it, and, and a lot of that came from the Japanese um, stuff that I learned over there. And then a lot of that came from the military, where I had actually been in the military in the Marine Corps in boot camp, and how they structured their, you know, training uh, early on to break recruits down and be able to get their minds um, kind of uh, just focused on being a Marine. Um, and then the training that I had in Japan uh, with the, the mat work and, and the cardio and different things of that nature. So I kind of mixed them together um, mm -hmm. because I felt like if I was going to train somebody and I'm going to put them in a house for six months and pay for everything, 
you know, um, that I wanted to make sure that the guys that were going there were committed. And the only way I could do that was put them through an eight hour tryout. That would be so horrific that only somebody that could, that was completely sold on themselves and that they were never going to quit. Um, I had to know that in an eight hour period. And the only way I could mm-hmm. do that was push them to a point to where they wanted to quit. Uh, and, but yet they, the ones that were the strongest mentally would never quit. And mm-hmm. I think in, I don't know, 10 years, eight years of doing this, I probably had 12 guys pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a lot like uh, I ran a pro wrestling uh, training center uh, for a little while and uh, guys would come in there and they wanted to be pro wrestlers. And I, and, and I would always tell them, I'd go one in 10 and they go, what do you mean? And I go uh, of the 10 people who come in here, five will last a week, two will last a month, one will finish, you know, and, and that is, and that proved to be true, you know, and a lot of the guys now who, who are out there, uh, came through the gym. I mean, Jeff Cobb, Brian Cage, uh, Will Hobbs. At time, they trained other places, but they came in and trained with a guy named Oliver John, who, who was the the head trainer for us, and really kind of put the polish on him. But you know, most of those guys they end up quitting after. <laughs> you know, they go through one or two trainings and they go, "Man, this is really hard," and then they quit. You know, and so what? What do you think? Now, now you know, you you talked about this. You're two and a half years, you're in there with arguably. The, one of the greatest uh, jujitsu artists of all time. What do you think it was about you that was different than other guys that made you so successful? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with my upbringing, you know, mm-hmm. being on the street, um, you know, I've been stabbed, I've been jumped. I'd had a gun pointed to my head. Um, I, you know, when I started doing this and people, most of the people around me were in, were, I wouldn't say scared, but, but they were, they were nervous, right? Mm-hmm. Because they were going in to do something that no one has ever seen done other than street fight or TV. So there was a lot of that. And some guys were just actually scared, right? Because mm-hmm. there was no rules and anything goes for mm-hmm. me. It was different because I had faced so much more worse um, through my childhood and growing up that coming in there and fighting one guy and mm-hmm. there's no weapons uh, it just felt like I, I was at home. Like, this is, this is me. Like I've got just as much chance as he does to win this fight. And I'm talking about Hoyce, even though his skill sets were better than mine. Um, but I always felt like this is one-on-one man. Why is it that um, I should be nervous about anybody that I walk in the, in, in the cage with because they should be nervous of me because my mentality is, and again, this is when I was younger as I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to mm-hmm. beat you into a pulp and mm-hmm. you are not going to do that to me. And that, that was just my mindset. Like there was nobody when I walked in there that was going to beat me or even come close to me. And that was my mindset. And when I trained, I trained the same way. I literally mm-hmm. trained so that when I walked in there uh, into the cage, I, it wasn't anything I hadn't seen in training. I put myself mm-hmm. in training a lot worse in training than I would ever see in a ring because I would have guys coming in every minute. And then mm-hmm. when we got closer to the fight and I was in better shape, I would have guys coming in every five minutes um, mm-hmm. for 20 to 20 to 25 minutes to 30 minutes um, and having a fresh guy all the time. And so there was no way that anybody I stepped in the cage with was going to be able to go as hard as I could go. Mm. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, you, you would overwhelm, you'd overwhelm guys, you know, with, with your cardio, 
you and your brother Frank. I remember you guys were legendary cardio guys. You know, I, I wanted to ask you something struck when you were talking to me, uh, when you were talking just then. I'm a big fan of the movie Rocky, right? And if you watch the movie Rocky IV, uh, Apollo Creed says something when he's talking to, to Rocky about taking the fight with Drago. And he says something like, he goes, uh, a warrior without a war, a war to fight might as well be dead. The warrior might as well be dead. And, you know, um, you're obviously a warrior. You're very driven. You're not fighting really anymore. Uh, you know, so how did you turn that off? How, how did you turn off that killer instinct? Or do you still have it? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, over the years I've learned to, because when I first fought, um, I wanted to hurt people. I mean, my intentions were these, this is my career. This is my money. This is food on the table. This is my house, my car, my kids, my family. You are not getting in the way of my career or taking anything off my table. I'm going to hurt you. And I would go in there with that mindset to literally just crush people. And I remember in Japan, I broke about three or four guys ankles. I was just, mm -hmm. I was, I was so determined that I was going to put fear into everyone. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point in my career where I had been counseled a little bit about my, but my faith, I'm a Christian mm -hmm. and my intentions were wrong because going in with, with only that thought was, it was wrong. And, and even not as a Christian, it's wrong, right? You don't go mm -hmm. in there to want to just hurt somebody because they're trying to take somebody. They're doing the same thing you are. And so I changed the strategy a little bit as I got a little bit older and wiser and I started my training a little bit different was that I'm going in there to compete against somebody who has different styles and different techniques, but I'm going in to win and mm -hmm. to win the fight. And so I would, instead of going out there with that anger and frustration and just want to destroy somebody, I started going in there with the knowledge of their weaknesses and their strengths and what they do well and what they don't and being able to attack them. Is their cardio good? I would study them and attack their weaknesses and push them into deep water and drown them um, mm -hmm. through cardio, through skill, whatever it was that I felt they were weak at, I would, I would attack. Mm -hmm. And so once I started doing that, I had less stress in my life too, because I wasn't always so tense all the time. All right. A little bit of technical difficulties, but we're back with Ken Shamrock. So Ken, you mentioned something interesting. You said you're a Christian. Have you always been a Christian or where does that come in in your story? No, um, when I was 10 years old, um, I was in between homes. Um, I had, like I said, got locked up early and in and out of group homes until I was 13. But in between that, I was, it's, they didn't keep me in juvenile hall. They put me, they sent me back to the same, which is crazy, right? Sent mm -hmm. me back to the same environment in which I was having problems with until they could put me in a group home, which mm. you look back on it, you're just thinking, how does how does that make any sense, right? You're, right? you're just putting them back into a problem that's always been a problem, and you're going to wait to place them somewhere. Anyways, they did that. And fortunately for me, during that time, um, my biological mother and um, my stepfather were arguing, fighting, violence, all kinds of stuff happening. And, you know, it was just a real just stressful environment to be around. And I remember I walked in one day after this probation officer brought me home to stay there until they could find a placement for me because the group of the juvenile hall place was full. Mm. And so they sent me, they put, they sent me back home knowing that I'm going to get placed somewhere uh, in the next couple of weeks. 
And so I remember walking in the door and she was sitting on the couch. I remember this clearly is sitting on the couch. She's re she was reading this book and she was crying. And I was like, like, what's wrong? I thought there was a fight or he was home and they were fighting again. And so as I walk in and the police comes in behind me and I'm like, what's wrong? Like kind of that protected. So what's God, what's going on? She's like, oh, nothing. Like she's happy. And I'm like, mm -hmm. and of course the police officer ends up leaving and she's talking to him, but she had just gone through this emotional thing, whatever it was. And I remember looking down at the book she was reading and it was this black book and it said Bible on it. And I was like, I was like, what, what does that got to do with you crying? And she goes, oh, it's just, you know, if, you know, how she started to explain, she found Jesus and this and that. And I was like, okay, that's, why would you ever want to be behind something that makes you cry? Right. <laughs> it's like, that's sad. Right. Yeah. And so I remember uh, my stepdad had come, was, was going to be home and it was, she asked if I wanted to go to church. And I was like, I don't want to go church man i said i robbed most of these people in the neighborhood i beat up the kids i said i'm not church well then i found out he was going to be home and i would be home home with him and i was like immediately he said i'll go yeah i'll go to church <laughs> yeah it was to get out of that right? i didn't want to be home with with him and so we end up going to church and I tell you it was one of the most awkward things i had ever felt walking into this room where all these kids was because i wasn't going into the main church because they had this kid's room that you, I guess you go into and so I went in this room and I all these kids knew me I mean I was not a, I mean I was a rebel mm -hmm. uh, along with my older brothers and so I did not have a good reputation and I remember walking into this place and all these kids looked at me and they're like what's he doing here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember that the, the the teacher who was running the class and obviously he knew who I was too was very kind to me you know, I mean, like uh, almost to a point to where I was like, don't touch me. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's no reason why you should be nice to me other than you're, you're, you're you want something from me. And uh, obviously I went through a lot of that stuff growing up being in the world that I was in. Right. So you deal with sure. that stuff all the time. And so I remember, you know, just being very, very, very protective of, of my, my space because it was just too, too nice. Like it's just yeah. something wrong. And I remember that day we were going out uh, while church was going on and we were going into the neighborhood and they had this, this, these flyers and they had this Wrigley Spearmint gum one piece and they had it stuck to this, this flyer and it had some saying on them and about, you know, inviting people to church. Cause obviously as church is going on, we're in this classroom and we're going to go out to these homes and all those people are obviously not in church. So this was a great way they thought to be able to get an invitation, all these people sitting at home on Sunday. So they sent us kids out to go do this. And I thought to myself, if I walk up to these doors, they're going to shoot me or they're going to call the police because <laughs> they know who I am. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, they, they know if I'm walking up to their house, it's not good. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm 10 years old. Remember this. I'm a 10 year old kid and I already have this reputation. And uh, already in and out of juvenile hall, just really bad. And so I remember thinking to myself, I'm not doing this. And I remember the guy comes up to me and he goes, why don't you just hold the box? Just walk around and just go for a walk with us. I was like, all right, I'll do that. And of course, you know, me, uh, I, I took advantage of the opportunity because I felt like, well, 
you know, there's free gum. <laughs> so I started taking some of the gum off some of the papers um, that these kids would bring up. And I remember a couple of them would walk up because they'd have a stack up and I'd pull three or four papers up and I'd take one on the bottom so they wouldn't notice. They'd get up there, they'd have these stacks and they'd get to the one that didn't have the gum on it. They'd go to hand it to the dude and then they would look on it there was no gum. And I remember they turned to look at me and I was like, what? <laughs> and so the whole time i'm walking around chewing this gum and just holding this thing and it was again like i said my upbringing and the way i was it was uncomfortable i just didn't belong in this environment but there i was and i remember this this is one memory and it's the memory and this feeling is what really changed kind of my not consciously but unconsciously on how my life would go because I remember as I was holding this box, I mean, I remember it was a crosswalk. I remember stepping off the crosswalk and I had hurt my, my um, ankle um, mm. a couple weeks prior to this. It was a bad sprain and I was kind of limping all the time and didn't walk very well. And so I remember walking with this box. And of course, I never just being in this environment, you don't complain about stuff like that. You just do whatever you do. Mm -hmm. And I remember just walking. And I remember when I stepped off this curb. And it was just like a crosswalk going across it for no reason. I wasn't looking for it, asking for it, um, praying about it. Didn't want to be a part of it. None of this. Like I was lost mm -hmm. and I was looking for something better somewhere uh, mm -hmm. unconsciously. And I remember as I stepped off the curb out of, out of nowhere, just I felt like all of a sudden all this stress and, and hurt and emotions um, just kind of like left my body. Like literally just, I felt free. Like there was just, there was just, I just felt like I was open and like there was no stress and no pain and no hurt. And I'm thinking to myself, what is in the gum? Like what am I doing? <laughs> and it just felt, I just felt like uplifted. And, mm -hmm. and I, and to this day, I, when I think about it, I just think when people talk about miracles and, these things that happen and I'm not one of those guys. I'm like, man, go easy on that because it's a lot of people are they, they, they're not able to take that stuff. Right. So uh -huh. I, I, I hate talking about it because it's just, it's that thing where people don't understand it unless it happens to them. Right. And it happened to me. And, and that was one thing that I believe unconsciously my whole life. Um, I was able to turn to that point to be able to understand what it was for Christ to be in your life. Someone that could come at any moment and literally lift anything that you're going through if you're faithful, if you're if you're strong enough in your belief to believe in him, that these things yeah. are possible. And, you know, again, I, I hate pushing it because I think people have to make these choices on their own or what they believe in. I don't want to push it on anybody. But I know what had happened to me and I know yeah. what it was. And I know all the way through my life, I've been searching for that feeling again, trying mm -hmm. to get back to that feeling because it was the most peaceful time I've ever had in my life was that moment. And the only thing it could be accredited to was, was Christ. And I remember even after that, I got, was, um, was it a week after that or something like that, where I went back to that church and got baptized. Wow. Soon after that, because I, I remember asking, and it was a weird conversation with the with the teacher. Because one, I didn't like the niceness, and I always felt like it was still wanted something more from me. So I wanted, I didn't want to invite that. And mm -hmm. but it was a, it was a weird conversation of trying to explain to him, and I just felt this thing, and I know it's not a gum, right? Um, right. 
But <laughs> what was it? And I remember he's, he's explaining it to me. And of course, today is, you know, the Holy Spirit and being able to give me that feeling and understanding of what it is to be a Christian and have Christ come into your life and be able to have some of these things at moments when you ask for it to come in and relieve you of all these pain. And so I remember thinking as he's explaining it to me and I, I didn't care. Right. All I, all I thought was like, so if I get baptized, I can get that again. And he said, yes. Mm. Um, you know, but it's not always going to be that way. There are going to be obviously times. And again, I'm a kid. So none of yeah. it mattered other than he said, yes, I could get that. So I got, I literally got baptized because of that moment because I felt that peace. And if, it, if I could get more of it or find it somewhere, because as a kid, people say all the time, you're not necessarily consciously looking for it, but you are. You yeah. are unconsciously trying to find things that make you feel good, things that yeah. get, get peace in your life yeah. um, and structure. And so unconsciously, that's what I wanted. So I remember getting baptized. And I remember at 10 years old, I stood up in front of a church after getting baptized and explaining what I'm just telling you to a congregation of people I robbed, stole from and beat up their kids. Yeah. Um, and and it, it was it was an odd, it was one of the oddest turnarounds uh, in a, in a short amount of time before I got placed in that yeah. home that I was living in that was very very disruptive, very very um, abusive, uh, and having my mom turn her life around uh, in that moment, and then being able to have, and not wanting it but being able to to share it to me. Uh, yeah. unconsciously. And so yeah. everywhere I went from group homes to, you know, colleges to, to, you know, fighting and whatever it was, that moment always, always comes back to me, um, understanding what my life and my value is in life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love a, a few of the things as, as someone who's a Christian myself, you know, one of the things you said was, you know, you'd hate talking to people about it because unless you've experienced it, you don't know, but they don't understand. But I'll tell you what, when you've experienced it, you can't deny it, right. you know? And and right. and so I, I totally get what you're saying. And, and that's what's so amazing about faith is that, you know, it's, it's so funny when you look at your life and just hearing you talk about this, how interesting it is that that happened. You go back to this place where you had a bad experience, but then you eventually end up with the shamrocks. And then this kind of, a, you know, kind of starts a, a path where your healing begins, not to say that there weren't lots of hard times, I'm sure, but you had that faith to kind of anchor you and things started turning around for you. That's so impressive and interesting, you know. Um, what, one thing I wanted to ask you about. So you, you talked about the the evolution of MMA. So if you could be in your prime right now, is there someone out there that you're like, I would love to get in the cage with them? And same with wrestling. Yeah, you know, it's not about individuals. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of great fighters out there. There, there is. Mm -hmm. um, and I know people say it all the time, man. If 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 they were, if it was my generation, I would have destroyed you. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. it, it's funny because you can't compare the two. Right. You know, like yeah, if I could go in now. And fight guys, you know, could I because of what I did in the in the very beginning, obviously knowing all the knowledge and the experience that we have now, I would be even more elite. Um, yeah, being right. able to have that knowledge uh, yeah. to, to to put into the arsenal. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I I just think times are different. It's hard to compare the two, 
But, you know, you just have those guys that you can look at and just know because of the toughness, because of the discipline, because of their mindset, they wouldn't fail because yeah. they just refuse to do that. And I'm one of those guys. I just yeah, refuse I, to fail. I, so I it think, doesn't matter what generation it is. For you me, know, I, I, I think I'm not going to fail. Well, and that's one thing I, I think that's interesting about people. You could you could go across any anything, you know, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, champions rise to the top no matter what. Yep. Like, yeah, sure, okay, maybe maybe you fought in an era where you know all this stuff wasn't as technical as it is now. But I guarantee with your mindset and who you were, if you if you were stepped in today, you'd be in the elite because that's just who you are. You know what I mean? You would have figured it out. I mean, you're like you said, you went you went in and with two and a half years, you stood toe to toe with the best jujitsu artist in America, maybe other than Hickson. Like there, there's nobody better. And you went 35 minutes with him and he couldn't tap you. I mean, that that's impressive. And so I think, yeah, I mean, even now, I think that you would have you probably would have figured out a way and been there with a John Jones, you know, and just been able to go toe to toe with him. Well, you look at it. Um, you know, even proofs in the pudding, because if you look at what I was able to do with Hoist, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with two and a half years of experience, I mean, against 20 years and 50 years with their family behind them, or what I was able to do in a small sample mm -hmm. of being able to have some knowledge. And I think it was only six months uh, to eight months of being able to have knowledge of the jujitsu system because nobody knew about it until we fought. And so then when I fought him the second time around, I had six to eight months to figure it out. Like, mm -hmm. how do I beat this style? And mm -hmm. I was able to do that. I mean, and to me, I think when you look at it, you think about what today is and all the knowledge that I could have absorbed. Forget about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Did you ever, I don't remember if you did, they might've been a little bit past when you were in the WWE, WWF. Did you ever have a chance to work with Kurt Angle or Chris Benoit? Never. I, I would have loved to, man. I thought Chris Benoit was so smooth and Kurt Angle with his background and wrestling and man, we could have some great matches, but yeah, those never happened, but those are ones that would be dream matches for sure. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen that with your submission holds and those guys. Cause I think Benoit, he came in, it had to have been 99, 2000 when he, when he jumped, was that kind of, you were already kind of outside of WWE at that point? Yeah, Kurt Angle came in right out as a, right as I left. I mean, he literally mm -hmm. came in and took my spot as I was moving out. Oh, interesting, man. That would have been such an awesome – that would have been an awesome program to watch. You could have gone there six months with that. Yeah, that would have been good. I would have enjoyed that. He's a good guy too. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I have to ask you, uh, there's a moment – I'm sure people have asked you about this before, but there's a moment with The Rock where you're in the ring with him and he absolutely smokes you with a chair. <laughs> and, and, and his version is, is that you told him to do it, right? You told him to light you up, yeah. man. I have, I don't think absent maybe the Royal rumble where the rock nailed mankind, you know, a thousand times with the chair that I had seen a single chair shot as point blank as that one. Tell me <laughs> what were you thinking and what did you do when you got to the back? Yeah, I, 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 for me, I played football, you know, I fought. Um, not seeing something that's hitting you is the worst than seeing it. And mm. so my thought process was, if I'm going to get hit, I don't want to hit the top of the head or the back of the head. 
or even my back. I felt like the hardest bone in my head is my forehead. So mm -hmm. hit me in the face and, mm -hmm. or at least try to hit me in the face. I'll take care of the rest. Mm -hmm. And rock was like him hauling around like, man, I don't know, you know, and I looked at him and I said, listen, that's how I want it. I said, if you don't swing it, I ain't selling it. And he looked at me kind of like cockeyed, like what? I was like, I won't sell it, man. If it looks shitty, I ain't selling it. And he, mm -hmm. so he turned and looked at me and said, oh, I'll swing it. <laughs> I said, yeah. okay, you better. <laughs> and so when we got in there, um, he, he swung it. And I remember it, the sound of it was worse than the actual hit. Everybody thought yeah. it, like it killed me. And I, I, I didn't, it, was, it wasn't that bad. I mean, really. Uh -huh. But I remember when the sound of it was really what scared me the most because it sounded like a shotgun. Yeah, he did. Me. It was so loud. I thought like, like it, I didn't hurt or anything, but I'm like, man, something had to go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man. So, so no animosity from that. Obviously, you're just like, ah, it is what it is. No, man. I I called it. I mean, that's what I wanted. Uh -huh. I told him we that spot was my spot. I told him uh -huh. that's how I wanted it. Yeah, there was also a moment, a short moment, where Dan Severn was in the WWF the same time as you. Was there ever talk of you guys doing a program in the WWF? No, um, I know they brought him in. I thought for sure, like, wow, okay, there's going to be a, a some angle here, and we did one match, and <laughs> you know, they just didn't believe that he was capable, right? Because I was already working angles and I was already moving, but when he came in. Severin's just one of those guys that was like an old school wrestler where he would have been over big time early on, but because it's so flamboyant now, the mic, it's all character and facial expressions. He didn't have any of that. Yeah. He was a good wrestler. He could come in and do all the moves, but there was no character to him. Yeah. He reminds, he reminded me when he, cause I remember when he was there and I remember he kind of reminded me a little bit of like an Ole Anderson. You yeah, know, like, somebody that that you could paint as this legitimate badass, and you'd have a manager with them, and so yeah. I, again, I would have loved to do an angle with them and had a great program, but I don't think they knew how to use them. Hell, they didn't even know how to use me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what was really hard about it when you came in was that, I mean, you were a legit badass. You know what I mean? Like you, you could have easily dropped anybody in that locker room at any time. And these guys are going over on you and things. Did you ever worry about your credibility going into the WWE? Or were you just like, no, this is just the deal? No, it's just my, when I walked into pro wrestling, I knew what it was because I'd done it early on. Right. So sure. I already sure. knew what, what the deal was. Mm -hmm. and, it, and the only way you have great matches is if both of you are participating. Both of you have to get the match over. It's right. not about winning. You know, obviously, you know, doing jobs all the time isn't cool, but that's not what right. I was doing. So, me being able to put other people over to be able to build a program like The Rock, being mm -hmm. able to go and work with him. You know, I got over him on King of the Ring. Um, you know, me being able to go and work, you know, shows with him and being able to help him get where he needed to go. That was my job. That's what mm -hmm. I was hired to do was to come in and be a pro wrestler. That's part of being pro wrestling. Yeah. Do, uh, of all of these different times of your career, both in the UFC at the beginning, then going to the WWF, then coming back, then having a stint in TNA, being the first TNA heavyweight champion, is there a part of your career that you would look back and say, that was my favorite time? I, I would. I had a lot of good times. and There's a lot of great guys that I met. Um, just really a good time. But I would have to say that, you know, being able to work with a lot of the top talent, Shawn Michaels, Undertaker, um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously, Brett, 
um, Stone Cold Steve. I mean, just you, all of the top guys. I mean, that was a thrill. I mean, think about it. I'm a guy coming in that used to do pro wrestling at a young age, then went into fighting, but now all of a sudden I'm in a ring with all these superstars. I mean, that was unbelievable. I mean, it was it was a it was an honor and it was awesome to be able to go in and work with those guys. Mm-hmm. But I really believe that the best time for me was when I was working the angle with The Rock, when we had that program going. That mm-hmm. was really one of the greatest times for me. Yeah. And now I got to tell you, so I, you came through Sacramento. Uh, there was a Raw where, uh, and this was the time, you know, this is for, for people who are a little bit younger. It's a time of, you know, WCW and the NWO were super hot. You came in when the WWF, the Attitude Era, was just starting. And uh, and we went to a Raw, and the main event was you, Mankind, and The Rock in a triple threat match. And the crowd, I mean, this was like right at the part where The Rock was starting to get, he was starting to kind of surpass Stone Cold as like the top guy. Okay. And I remember just sitting in the crowd thinking, as someone who's kind of been involved in wrestling, I'm like, this is so hot. Like as far as like, it's so over. You know what I mean? The three of you working and it was, and it was a DQ. It was a, like, it ended up in a DQ, you know, no contest, you know, thing where nobody really won, but the crowd was still into it. And at the end, when the cameras went off, all of you had your moments and all of you were over. And it was just, it was just so crazy. What, what was it that kind of ended up getting you out of the WWF? Cause you were over. Yeah. I, I think it was because um, towards the end, there was things that, um, they wanted me to do, and I just, I, you know, it was just you know, pro wrestling's pro wrestling. But then there's things that that will seep into your your personal lives, like mm-hmm. wanting me to do the the incest angle with my sister. Um, mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the reason why I really was getting crazy over all this stuff is because I was wanting her, you know. And yeah. I have three kids at home that are right. still in grade school. This stuff's mm-hmm. real to them. They would have to go to school and deal with all that. And I yeah. was like, I just, just want to do that. And then they wanted me to, to do a match with China. And I had always, and I, I know it's wrestling and all that, but it was just certain things I felt like we could get around and not do. And one of them was fighting a girl. I just, mm-hmm. I just didn't, I just didn't want to be put in that position to where I had to explain to my kids, even though it was entertainment, that it was okay for their dad to hit this girl because it's not real. <laughs> yeah. right they're gonna look at me kind of like oh like i saw yeah it. <laughs> yeah yeah so there was but, just weird things that were happening i didn't feel like we were going in the right direction for for what i wanted uh especially after what i and I, you know wwf didn't build me i built myself with ufc sure. so i had to protect the, the brand that i brought in and mm-hmm. i felt like it just wasn't going where i wanted it to go so i had to make some tough choices yeah Interesting. Uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're, we're about out. I have three questions that I ask everybody that I want to ask you. Okay. And then we'll, we'll be wrapped up. First one is what would you say is your biggest success in life? Oh, I, man, without a shadow of a doubt is being able to still, you know, my, I grew up without a family. You know, mm-hmm. the one I did have was broken. Obviously, I didn't even know my brother. I know my brothers, but never lived with them. And, you know, so it was just stress. So, when I got married, man, I really wanted to make sure that I, 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 I gave my kids opportunities in life and I was there for them. So I think my greatest feat is being able to do what I, my responsibility as a father and as a husband. Mm. 
Yeah. That's, that's awesome. What would you say is your biggest failure in life and what did you learn from it? Uh, failure. I, I don't look at any situation as failure. I don't look at any deals or anything. Failure, I think, is obstacles that everybody mm. has to overcome to be successful. Mm. So failure to me is dying. Like, mm. you, you you know, it's over. You If you made a mistake, you know, driving a car 100 miles an hour, you know, that you can't recover from that, right? Mm-hmm. But I think in life, um, failures is when you quit. When you just yeah. stop, and I've never stopped anything. I'm always still trying to succeed, so I, I don't know how to answer that because I, I'm I'm never going to fail. Uh, there's yeah. no failure ever that I've ever yeah. had. I'm always going to keep trying and getting better. Yeah. You mentioned death, and that's the the third question. You know, at some point, we all we all meet our maker, right? And uh, you're when you pass away, there's a funeral, and someone gives a eulogy. What would you hope would be the one thing that someone would say about Ken Shamrock and his eulogy? Say he was a good, strong Christian man. He loved his family. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, so, so what's next? What's uh, next Valor for Ken Bare Shamrock? Valor Bare Knuckle. We're literally, I'm literally here down in, in, uh, in Florida now at uh-huh. a business building. Um, and we're putting together, we have already done two shows with Valor. Uh, we've got some great momentum. So we're literally just buttoning up the business side of it. Uh-huh. So it's up and coming and we're excited about it. So that's what's next for Ken Shamrock is Valor Bare Knuckle coming to you. Awesome. That's so exciting. So you get this on, do you stream it somewhere? Do you get it on pay-per-view? How, how can yeah, you, get it you, you go to our site, Valor, uh, ValorBK.com and okay. we're going to have our app out and everything. So it'll be great to go. Awesome. Well, Ken, well, Ken I appreciate you giving me the time uh, and uh, you were a big part of my life. Uh, watching you has been an absolute pleasure. You're an inspiration to many, and I appreciate you being willing to take the time. For those who've listened, subscribe. We have more exciting things coming up. World's Most Dangerous Men, Ken Shamrock. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate you, man. God bless.